Our scripture lesson this morning comes from John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17. But before I read that, let us pray. God of grace, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Open our hearts and minds that we might hear from you and know the path you would have us to take. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I do not call you servants any longer because servants do not know what their master is doing. But I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my Father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last so that the Father will give you whatever you ask Him in my name. I am giving to you these commands, so that you may love one another. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. This summer, we've been doing a sermon series on the hymns of our faith. I don't know about you, But there are some songs that just seem to conjure up for me an emotional response. It's probably because growing up at Mint Hill Baptist Church outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, it seems that two or three times a year on a Sunday evening, instead of following the traditional order of service with scripture readings and preaching, we would have a good old-fashioned hymn sing. Miss Mickey, our church pianist, would be at the ready. Folks would have their hymnals out, and whomever was the quickest on the draw would call out the number or a title. At Calvary, hymn number one. When we'd finish singing all the verses of that one hymn, someone else would chime in. In the garden, and on and on we'd sing. Of course, my mom would always throw in that one she loves, but for some reason, no one else seems to know. As Jacob with travel. I, however, do know it as the dutiful daughter that I am. But other than this occasional one from left field from my mom, most of the hymns were those old faithfuls, the ones that you didn't need your hymnal for, at least not for the first verse. And this morning's hymn of our faith was definitely in that rotation of our hymn sing, those that we know by heart. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Now, while the message of our sins and grief and the unnecessary burdens that we carry seems heavy, I can't help but smiling when I sing this hymn. 
somehow that reminder that we do have a friend in Jesus, that there is one who is willing to always carry my burdens, lifts my spirits. I think that was probably Joseph Scriven's hope when he penned this poem. You see, these words weren't intended to be a hymn, but rather they were a poem Scriven wrote to his mother in 1855. He had immigrated from Canada, leaving his mother back in Ireland, and after about 10 years apart, he learned that his mother was facing a crisis. And so he wrote this poem as a word of encouragement, as a means to lift her up in the time of heavy burden. This idea of having a friend in Jesus isn't one that we see all throughout the Gospels. In fact, there is only one time where it's recorded that Jesus used that language, and it's found in the passage I just read in John 15. Abraham was referred to as a friend of God in Scripture, but it is only in this farewell discourse of John that we hear Jesus call us friend. If you've ever taken a class on public speaking, I'm sure you've heard the three parts of a good speech. Tell the audience what you're going to say. Say it. Then tell them what you've said. Or, in my more folk language, tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them, then tell them what you told them. I'm not sure if Jesus sat through this advice as well, or if it was after him that this advice was modeled, but we hear it loud and clear. What is it that Christ is trying to tell us? Love each other. He begins and ends our passage the same way. This is my commandment, verse 12 says, that you love one another as I have loved you. And again in verse 17, I give you these commands so that you may love one another. Simple enough, right? I think Jesus is trying to tell us to love each other. So what does this friendship with Jesus have to do with love for one another? Where does that come into play? Christ is trying to help his disciples understand what it looks like, what it means to truly love each other. I don't imagine that their culture was the same as ours, but perhaps the idea of love could be misconstrued for the disciples. After all, we do it pretty easily. I love Chick-fil-A. We see our favorite celebrities fall in and out of love faster than I can change the television channel. So maybe we too can use some further explanation of what it means for us to follow Christ's command to love each other. Jesus elaborates, No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. I can only imagine the disciples' reaction. Say what, Jesus? I thought I just had to love them. I didn't know that there was some ride-or-die covenant going on here. He continues, You are my friend if you do what I command. You see, the disciples weren't struggling with loving Jesus, and they could grasp following him. 
But this idea of a friend laying down their life, of having to follow the command of Christ to love one another and lay down our life, that was some heavy stuff. By calling them friend, Jesus wasn't giving the disciples a promotion in some hierarchy of Christianity. The servant-to-friend transition doesn't even free them from submission. It simply grants them knowledge. The same is true for us as Christ followers today. You see, Christ modeled submission, and we have to be willing to embody that as well. Because we are called to bear fruit. We are called to action. We can't say we love God and then live a life that treats others as subordinate. We can't say we are Christ followers and then allow for others to be treated as possessions. First John put it this way. Those who say, I love God and hate their brother or sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this, those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. We know why Jesus came. We know what he taught. We heard his call to love. We have the knowledge and now as we bear fruit, we must also remember his act of submission and try to embody it through our love of others. No one has greater love than this. In the context of Jesus' time, in the shadow of the cross, Jesus was laying down his life so that we might have life, so that we might live. This is the model of love we've been given. Before we're too certain that we're in the clear, because we've got this being nice to people thing down, I want to remind us of what Elie Wiesel said. Because I believe the call of Christ to love others extends beyond our church family. I think it extends to all of those with whom we share this earth. Wiesel endured the concentration camps of Nazi Germany during World War II. And he had this to say about love. The opposite of love isn't hate. It's indifference. Wiesel may have seen those who were supposed to be friends of Christ who shut the door, who turned the other way. And yet, we know the stories People like Corey Ten Boom, whose family hid Jews and helped them escape. And it makes me wonder am I going to choose to live a life of love, or will I live a life of indifference? As I think back on the songs of my faith, this passage takes me back to one of my favorites, and I've actually used it in a sermon before. DC Talk in 1992 wrote the song Love is a Verb. And the main message, you guessed it, 
is that love isn't something that's romantic, but it's something we put in action. As they put it, back in the day there was a man who stepped out of heaven and he walked the land. He delivered to the people an eternal choice with a heart full of love and truth in his voice. Gave up his life so that we might live. How much more love could the Son of God give? Here is the example that we ought to be matching. Because love is a word that requires some action. We cannot be counted as a friend of Jesus if we do not love. And we cannot love if we do not act. No one has greater love than this. How do we hear those words in the context of today's world? How do we hear this call in the shadow of a pandemic? How do we hear this in the shadow of the Black Lives Matter movement? Will we choose a life of love? Or will we live a life marked by indifference? The disciples weren't called a friend of God because they had accomplished certain things yet. But because Christ was setting an expectation for them. So the question I have for myself today, and the question I ask you, is how are we going to meet Christ's expectation? How are we going to lay down our life? Followers of Christ, friends of God, may we love others in such a way that all people can truly sing what a friend we have in Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen.